is very good afternoon. Today's the Niall Boylan podcast on this wonderful Wednesday afternoon. Now, we've a lot to get to today, and I want to focus on one thing in particular and something that's very special to me. Because I was born in a mother and baby home, I've had a huge interest in what has happened around that, the redress scheme, how the government have investigated it, of course, the apology that was given by Antishuk not so long ago in relation to the survivors and the victims of the mother and baby home. But it all started way, way back. For many people out there who don't understand what the mother and baby homes were, they were homes essentially where women who were morally shamed into having their babies because they weren't married or didn't have a partner in these homes. The babies then were taken by the nuns who coerced them into giving these children up for adoption. Sometimes they signed, but I still suggest they were illegal adoptions because they were coerced. And those babies were taken by either Irish families or indeed, in many cases, American families. But one of the most shocking stories to come out of this, of course, was the Tomb Babies, which is a story that has grabbed international attention all over the world. And I know many of our American listeners who may be listening on stream now, be it on Twitter and Facebook or either on our website. Um, and we are going to send this all over the place to make sure American listeners get to see it because they have a huge interest in this particular story. But the shocking part of it, of course, is the Tomb Babies with the Bond Secure Nuns. And back in 2012, Catherine Corliss, who was a historian, discovered that almost 900 babies' bodies were mysteriously buried uh, beneath the mother and baby homes. And Catherine Corliss joins me on the line. Good evening to you, Catherine, or good afternoon to you, sorry. Good night. How are you? I feel good to join you. Catherine, let's just go back in time a little bit and let's talk about, firstly, the history of this particular mother and baby home. 1925, it, was, it kind of changed ownership and it's, they started to use it as it. Was it in and around that time, 1925, they started using it as a mother and baby home? Uh, that's right. It was a workhouse uh, since, since the famine times and uh, the building was there. there was, it was on seven acres of ground. The workhouse was closed down in 1922 when Ireland became a free state. And uh, then they decided to turn those workhouses into either mother and baby homes, county homes, or psychiatric hospitals. So the Tumun was turned into a mother and baby home. And the Bons Corps arrived there in 1925. They were employed by the state to run the home. That's the way it happened now. And, and the sort of individuals that were placed into this home, uh, you know, uh, basically under the care of the Bond Secure Nuns, uh, obviously uh, paid for by the state, what types of individuals? Were, were they troubled young women or were they women who had just got pregnant out of wedlock because at that time that was seen to be morally wrong? You were classed as an illegitimate child in those days if that happened. Were they the types of individuals that would have been in there? Well, they were ordinary people, I, I would say. People, uh, young girls, and some of them underage, unfortunately, that uh, were raped by uh, family, family or, well, not family, I suppose, maybe relatives or, or neighbours or something like that. And mm. they ended up in the home. Any woman who became pregnant, no matter what age, no matter who she was, what background, uh, they were sent into the mother and baby homes just as uh, you declared, just out. It was the way uh, Ireland was at the time. It was the, the, the iron fist of the church that decided that uh, women who, who, didn't, who weren't married and who, who were, uh, got pregnant, uh, it was their fault. Uh, the men weren't blamed because... Uh, Probably uh, the, the rule was that uh, the men were tempted and they couldn't tell it themselves, which was atrocious, an atrocious way to look at it. Mm. And many of those poor women were just raped. So they were sent in there no matter what age or where they were from. And as a historian, you became really interested in the story in the, I suppose, in around 2010, 2012. And what kind of made you think there was something more to this story than just the shame of women being put into these homes and having their babies put up for adoption? And we can see in the background there uh, the mother and baby homes and, and, and the, the tomb site. What, what, what gave you your first interest in this? 
Well, uh, to go back now, uh, I wouldn't uh, class myself as a historian. Uh, I had a an interest in local history, and that's important to say that because anyone could have done this. Uh, I, I am a housewife, um, minded children, minded the farm, minded tended to my garden, quite happy, and I uh, just took up a local history course, which was quite good friend for a year, and uh, it gave me a huge interest in, in, in local history, and local means around my own area. So I started uh, doing, I started writing about my own area and uh, the, uh, the, the local journal, the Chum, uh, local journal that delved into his history, um, they, they liked my writing and they asked me to do an essay. So I said, why not the mother and baby home in Chum? And that's where it all started really. And mm. uh, from that, from the local history course, I had got a lot of information. I had got the know-how, where to go, how to get information and above all, the tutor we have, he 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 said he did say that never give up, always always yeah. keep trying. The answers are there if you keep trying. So that's where it started really. And uh, I asked the the, the uh, journal would I do uh, would would I cover the mother and baby home because there was absolutely nothing written about it. So that's where I started out quite naively, just writing a little bit of history. And you noticed, but there was there was anomalies because the anomalies were the death certificates for babies that had gone in or had been born in the mother and baby home, but seemingly didn't exist anymore. And from your own records, there was 798. That was the original figure, I think, that you came out with at the time was 798. Is that figure still stand or do you think it could be more than that of babies who are either born um, or maybe some of those babies were unborn, so to speak, anywhere between pre-birth and maybe three or four years of age? who were buried unceremoniously in, if we could describe it to people, I suppose there was kind of these sewerage tanks uh, below the building. They were That's where they were kind of draped and buried there. I mean, that's 798 figures. Is that an accurate figure? Oh, it's well, there's 798 death sorts of babies and children who died in the home. Now, that when I found that, I said, this is a, this is a prime record. We can't dispute this. The records are there. Uh, each and every death sort for every child that died. And there could be quite a lot of uh, stillbirths as well, but they wouldn't have been recorded anyway, Niall. So mm -hmm. we can absolutely yeah, of course. certify that there are 796 death sorts, and that's what I worked on the whole time. There were 798, actually, but uh, two of those, I found them in the main tomb graveyard, which is quite nearby, and uh, they weren't illegitimate babies, you see. They were treated separately. They were buried with family, even though they had been. You see, the home covered uh, catered for uh, orphans as well, or, or maybe mothers that were very sick for a while, and they would be in there for a while. So uh, the catered for those as well. So these children who died, and we can only assume that they died to neglect, irresponsibility, malnutrition, disease because they were intended to medically properly. I'm assuming these are the ways these children, these young children would have died. But I'm, I'm trying to get a picture in my head of this, you know, this old, really old building with these nuns looking after uh, the mothers who are having these children. And when they died, I have this vision of a nun taking the body, filling out the death cert and bringing it to, if you could describe for, our, you know, our viewers and listeners exactly where they brought these bodies and what they did with them. Well, uh, the home itself, it, it, the massive building, it was a kind of, um, almost you could say, like a cage block prison. And that was the shape of them. All the workhouses were the same. And uh, by the time the mother, the nuns just moved in there and, and tidied it up. And uh, that's that's all that had to be done. Now, about uh, 50 yards out the back of that home, there was a corner where there was a working sewage tank at the time of the workhouse. Now, you're talking about a massive sewage tank. 
at the time because it was to cater for all the uh, the workhouse, the hundreds of people uh, that, that were in that workhouse. There was also underground uh, Victorian, you could call them uh, brick tunnels uh, leading to that sewage pit. So uh, the, the evidence that I got is that uh, the nuns obviously didn't carry them out. Uh, there was a lot of women in the home who stayed on because uh, they would have had no family and they stayed on as unpaid servants for their keep all those years. And it would have been uh, those older women that would have done the dirty deeds, you could say, for the nuns. They would have carried out those little babies wrapped just in, in cloth and uh, placed them uh, in that in those chambers. And those they employed one man in the home itself. That's all they needed to employ because all the women who had to spend a year there with their babies, uh, they had to pay back. That, that was their penance, to pay back for a year unpaid work, every kind of work you would think of. So that's who would have brought mm-hmm. the babies there. And sometimes the the one man that had employed the caretaker, he would have he would have placed those babies in the uh, chambers as well. And I have I have have evidence that that man would have had had stated that many a priori would have said them to the baby's ear before he placed them in the tunnels. So the nuns got those uh, that that's how it worked. And when we look back now, are there any of the individuals, including that man, including the bond secure nuns? I think the last time we spoke to, I think there was about two of the original nuns were still alive, but both were in care homes at this stage, and probably I would think one of them had dementia. Are they are they all passed away now? All the individuals, both from council, the council, from the state, and from the home. Well, the nuns definitely. As you said, I got the same information from the nuns that there's two of them still there, but they they're not to be talked to. They're not to be spoken to. They're not to be. Um, they're not to be uh, to go on any any broadcast or anything because uh, they're too old, they're too elderly, and uh, one of them has dementia. But uh, the other man, well, the caretaker, he he died unfortunately some years back, and uh, his John Cunningham was his name. Now he's well, that's well documented. Mm-hmm. That is that is his name, and I I had been speaking uh, to his um, um, his grandson who had carried the stories and uh, it, it was he who gave me that information. So, I mean, I suppose, uh, I suppose that a lot of them were doing what they were told to do and, and uh, the only answers we could ever get would be out of the nuns, who unfortunately are all gone now. Um, and I, look, if they were in fit shape or in health, good health, I mean, nowadays there would be criminal charges for doing what they did and what they were responsible for, what we believe they were responsible for, which was certainly criminal it was, activity. It was covered up, it was hidden, I mean. Uh, the, the ordinary person passing in and out through that home, well, pass, passing the home, uh, nobody got in really. It was surrounded by uh, ten foot high walls, the seven acres, and uh, very few people got in there. And uh, nobody knew because uh, the nuns absolutely made sure of that. They would be met at the gate if, if anyone was calling or they would, you know, even people who were delivering mm-hmm. uh, stuff to the home, they were met at the gate. So uh, nobody really knew. The ordinary person wouldn't have known what went on in there. Now, speaking of the ordinary person, we all didn't know. You knew about it, Catherine, as an amateur historian, and you had gone to great, into great detail and great lengths to find out exactly what was happening. And if it wasn't for... I didn't for find a... out, though, Nile. I didn't find out until I started my research. I had course. no idea that so many children were just, were just thrown in there and they were left there when the nuns left 1961, even though I walked past that home every single day, going in and out of school and now to work. And uh, we just didn't know. Country people wouldn't have heard anything at all about that. I was absolutely shocked when I got the number of babies who had died. And not. I thought, first of all, there were the stillbirths, but they were all the deaths, certs, saying what they died of. 
and uh, their ages and when they died. And I was absolutely horrified. I mean, we got to know about it, of course, when the Daily Mail, I mean, I know on many occasions that, that Alison O'Reilly had tried to put the story out. That's right, the Mail Sunday, yeah, she yes, broke the story. And they broke and the story. The and, the, and then it became, of course, an international story. Um, Enda yeah, Kenny yeah, in 2014, of course, Enda Kenny ordered a full investigation into it. So at that yeah. point, did you believe vindicate that you were being vindicated for the story? Because did you feel at one point, you know, up to 2014 when Enda Kenny or, ordered that particular investigation, did you feel like you were banging your head off a wall that nobody was actually listening to something that was so incredible and so serious? Well, I was banging my head up two walls. First of all, because I mean, I knew this in, first of all, in 2012. Uh, I didn't know the amount that time. I only had about 200 uh, death certs. And I decided then to really delve into this more. And I, as I said, I, I was, it was a staggering um, discovery. And uh, I brought it out in June. I brought it to the Archbishop in June. I brought it to the Bonscore nuns, brought it to Galway County Council, who owned that site. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just sort of swept under the under the carpet again, or under the under the ground, you could say. And yeah. uh, it was denied, and uh, nobody wanted to know. There wasn't a will, and I was absolutely getting nowhere until the media took hold of it. I remember, I, remember, I remember covering the story in the very early days with Alison when she, we, we spoke to Alison on the air and I think I spoke to yourself at one point of the air but I mean look I have a whole timeline here which is like about 20 pages thick of everything that's happened between then and now and most of it seems to be just kicking the can down the road. We had a Minister of Children Captain Zappone at the time of course with Roderick O'Gorman now as well but of course the latest, the latest news now is that you know that Roderick O'Gorman now has appointed a new director who will oversee the excavation of the site and the former yeah. mother and baby home at Jim. Now, are you pleased to hear that? Will you be able to step back a little bit or do you find that you won't be able to, that you'll still have to supervise everything and make sure everything is being done right? Well, after after 10 years of begging and pleading and with the government writing to uh, the church, I even wrote to the Pope, I wrote to um, uh, his, uh, what, do you, what do you call that man in Dublin? Uh, sorry, no, I just can't Roger O'Gorman, sorry, yes, yes. No, 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 the church, the church, um, Archbishop, um, sorry, I can't think of his name at the moment. Damon Martin, uh, is it? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely, yes. And uh, I wrote to the man above him, and uh, above him, and uh, got some replies, and nice replies, and replies I didn't want, God bless you, and all this. Yeah. But however, uh, I got, uh, I, I, it was a struggle, I'm telling you, I had to, I went up to the door a few times, I spoke. And I pleaded, and and all over the years, it was pleading, pleading, and keeping the media uh, alerted and keeping the story alive. It was a huge struggle, now. But I am, I am happy uh, that this but director it, has finally, finally been been uh, appointed. And the new director, Daniel McSweeney, has been named as the director that will oversee yeah. the excavation. And the uh, and so, what are we looking for now, or what are we trying to do? I mean, I, and by the way, I'm quite shocked that you had to plead and beg literally at the steps of the doll or go into the Oireachtas or whatever it happened to be. And I, it's shocking that we see a story in Ireland's history, such a dark story of, you know, over 900 babies who were buried unceremoniously in such a horrible, horrible way and allowed to die. Because Many of those... Because the religious have no Absolutely. other reason. And that's why I had to fight for them. I mean, and don't get me wrong, many of those children may have died of incurable diseases. We accept that. But many of those children probably didn't have to die because they could have got medical attention or they could have been fed properly because many of them we believe died been. from and malnutrition. Were, uh, there, there were a nursing congregation and, and they would have known about hygiene. and uh, you know It was just pure neglect. If, if mm -hmm. a baby got sick, it, 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 it seems it was on to the next one. It wasn't worthwhile saving them. 
That's, that's just the way it, that's, to to, to that's even think right. about that just sounds horrendous. So you can only imagine what I mean. They must have been heartless, absolutely heartless, because I don't know anybody who could allow a child to suffer and die. But so they must have been heartless people. I mean, to them, it was just an industry. It was a business. It was an industry that they were running. Commodities, yeah. They looked upon them as commodities. They looked at them as sinful. Their mothers had committed a grievous sin and therefore the babies were the offspring of that. And it was an awful, awful time in Ireland. And it's just from a religious congregation and from a church that didn't interfere and do something. That's what drove me all those years now. Mm -hmm. Nobody's speak for those babies. And I'm insured, I wanted to ensure that they weren't forgotten about and that is happening now. And that is why I am quite happy that uh, a director has been appointed and he is a good director. He has 15 years experience of war-torn countries about exhuming uh, people who are missing. He's experienced in DNA testing and it's just what we need. And uh, mm. I can't really take a back seat now. You asked me that. But no, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think you can. I am relieved. But I, just I, 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 I actually, Catherine, I don't want you to take a back seat because yeah. I enjoy talking to you about it because... I think it's I really important that people hear yeah. about it all the time. I think it's important that we constantly keep talking about it. Because it's right on, right on there. And that's what brought it where it is. People constantly aware and constantly asking the government what's happening with the children babies. And only for that, it would have died a very quick death again. So uh, I am very mm. grateful to all media who kept this going all those years. And it gave me hope as well when people would ring me up and ask me, will you do this, will you do that talk? I did everything I possibly could now in between talking at universities, uh, I, uh, people were very kind. I did get have a lot of awards, but the issue was uh, this is keeping it out there for the June babies. Mm. So, you did. Uh, you, 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 I know you got a human. You got a human rights award, and I, I know there's a book out as well in relation right. to that. Award. That's what, that's what, yeah, and I got from the Red Cross as well, which is fantastic. And you deserve it, by the way. And, and by the way, can I point out as well? You're one of the only people in Ireland ever to get a standing ovation on the national television know, show, the Late Late Show. That was my very first time appearing on, on a live program and I'm telling you that week I was nervous I was sick with nerves all that week only for my husband Aidan he said he pointed out to me you have to do this as born nationwide it will make a difference and that's the only reason and then when I got the standing ovation I, I, I was just shocked out of my mind I didn't know where to look or where to turn and to run away that's how I felt but I, I, sat, a, I sat and watched you that, that night like most people in Ireland because the ratings that particular night were huge because you were on it and everybody was very aware of this shocking story but to see yes. you getting that standing ovation nobody in the history of the Late Late Show deserved it more than you did that particular night and, 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 and as well as that it, it showed me that people do care there's people out there that do care and that do appreciate my work and that would have spurred me on to keep going as well all that helped Niall it was very very difficult at times because uh, I, I am an anxious person and anyway. I suffer from anxiety but uh, this was just too huge to let go of and I just had to keep it and it's great that it's come to this. And, and, and of course, not only that, it, it, it got international attention as well. It was actually on CNN yeah. News. It was on everywhere. And I'm sure you've had calls from all over the world to talk to I people had, in I relation. Had, I had, I had uh, camera crews coming in the back door and then cameras waiting at the front door. But it was exhausting, Nile, but it was well worth it. It well, was what I needed. What well, babies Catherine, needed. you are a true hero. And for the Irish people, for you to bring this story out and make us all aware. And by the way, the story of the Tune Babies didn't just make us aware of what happened in Tume and the horrific uh, situation in Tume with those 900 babies and more than 900 babies who died there unceremoniously, but it drew attention to the mother and baby homes as a whole. And now we're in a situation where Roger O'Gorman is now addressing the redress scheme for the survivors, although again, once that's been delayed, we're going to be talking about that a little bit more in a few minutes. So it did draw attention 
sorry, myself, I was born in St. Patrick's home on the Navin Road, to all the people who were born in Dunboyne, in Bespra, and all the other homes all over the country. So sorry. it drew attention to the whole, I it, suppose, it Ireland's opened, dirty it, secret. It, it did, it opened and uncovered an awful lot. And I think that's initially, when I started out, I think that's why they, they, they tried to stamp, stamp it before it got anywhere because they obviously knew what was you know what was out there and what was waiting to explode so mm -hmm. uh, thank goodness it did explode it also opened up um, the people for those who were adopted it opened up that area to where they are now allowed access to their files full access that mm -hmm. law was passed and that was another um, um, plus yeah. to come out of all this in relation to you were referring obviously to the track and trace there do, do you believe that in other homes, the largest home, of course, was St. Patrick's Home on the Navin Road. You had Bespra, which was very big as well. Dunboyne, of course, was very big and probably one of the more recent ones to close more recently. Do you believe that Toome is unique in the sense that babies were allowed to die, neglected and were buried on site? Or do you think it's possible that we'll probably never know because St. Patrick's Home is long gone. There's a housing estate built there and all there is to remember uh, St. Patrick's Home is a little plaque on a wall. But do you think it's possible that there are other sites around Ireland similar to Toome where babies are buried? Well, absolutely. Uh, there is a story from Vesper where I spoke to uh, uh, a man that he remembers as a child and that should be looked into. He told me this story uh, and he, he, he's adam adamant that he, the, himself and Nepal were playing around the grounds of Bessborough home and uh, they, they saw a few people and a few nuns standing around a tank there and uh, they just came a bit closer and uh, what, he, he, he describes what he saw as little green dolls all in a tank and they, of course when the nuns saw them the lads were chased away and that was the end of it but I mean little green dolls I mean that that's um, to me, uh, shows uh, little skeletons that would have done green. So, mm -hmm. I mean, th there is something in Vesper that needs to be investigated. It was, right? the, sa so, it was the same in Tume yeah. originally. It was two young boys that found orig the original yeah. remains, if you go right back yeah. to the 1970s as well. Well, look, continued success with the great, great okay. work you've been doing and raising attention for which is Ireland's dirty secrets and Ireland's really dark past. Do you think yeah. we've learned, by the way, going forward in Ireland? Do you think we've learned from those mistakes in the past and the way, particularly, we treat women? Um, but do you think we've learned? Well, I think I think it opened people's eyes. Uh, the church, in particular, they're they're taking a different view now, and mm. uh, it will take time. But uh, definitely, it, it it has helped. There's no doubt about that. It will give people uh, and uh, authorities and the church, in particular, an absolute different view of women. It has mm. changed society. Well, listen, I got to thank you very much indeed for joining us today, Catherine. Yeah, I, sh I should read, I should yeah. really stand up and give you a standing ovation. <laughs> but funny, Catherine, funny. thank you very yeah, much indeed. And I'm sure we'll talk thank again you. very, very soon. There you go. Catherine Corliss, the historian who is responsible for the tomb babies. And of course, many of us now know the story of the tomb babies, which has gone worldwide. Now, getting back to, I suppose, in some sense, the general I suppose, topic of adoption in Ireland. And most of that was coerced and illegal adoptions in Ireland. If you go right back, I, I'll give you my own personal story in a few minutes' time as well. I was born in St. Patrick's Home, the Navin Road, as was my brother. And um, in those days, I suppose, the church were absolutely responsible. The state were responsible somehow as well because they kind of washed their hands in it and paid the church to look after it. But essentially what had happened was that women were made to feel they had no option but to go into these homes. And people have often said to me, but hold on, Niall, you can't just blame the church now and everything. The parents had a duty and a responsibility of this too. You know, they sent their daughters off to these homes. 
Well, you've got to understand why the parents did that. Because if the parents didn't do that, they daren't go to Mass on Sunday. Because the parish priest would be looking at them funny. Or they would be shunned in their own town. And their daughter daren't come home pregnant. Or daren't walk around the, the housing estate with a buggy without actually having a husband by her side. Because that was what the Catholic Church told people at the time. That's not the way women behave. And those women were forced in, those young girls were forced into these mother and baby homes and they weren't leaving with those babies. Some of them signed for the adoptions, but I believe they were coerced signatures. Many didn't even sign, they were just illegal adoptions. Many of those babies ended up in Ireland, abroad, America, United States, of course, they all came here and they literally purchased them. These were essentially baby factories. Now the government has decided to apologise, of course, and Kenny apologised for the Magdalene Laundries, and Michal Martin, of course, apologised for the mother and baby homes. With an apology comes redress. I know you might think to yourself, sure, what's money after all that? But it helps. It does help people, I suppose, to enjoy a sense of life, particularly those women, the older women, not so much the children, who many of them now are at a point in their lives where they will be passing away very soon. They're passing away as we speak. And again, the Irish government are kicking that down the road. Let's see how long we can push it away so they don't get any money at all. There has been a debate around the suggestion that those who are those children that were born and were there less than six months don't get any money because according to the government, psychologists believe that they wouldn't have come to any harm. In other words, it doesn't play in their mind for the rest of their lives. Where the best psychologist in the world will tell you that's complete and utter nonsense. Well, joining me from Beyond Adoption Ireland, the founder is Cloda Malone. Cloda, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Niall. It was wonderful to listen to Catherine Corliss. What an amazing woman. Without Catherine, we wouldn't know about Tune Babies. Without Tune Babies, we wouldn't, I suppose, have the platform and the spotlight on the mother and baby's homes that we've had for the last 10 years. And thankfully, you know, we have that spotlight on it. But all we're doing constantly, I think, Cloda, and maybe you'll disagree, is kicking the can down the road. Absolutely. Firstly, Niall, I would like to commend Catherine Corliss because I know in our community um, can be very harsh you know, to people that they feel are on the outside. And if it wasn't for Catherine, nobody would have believed us. Even my own adoptive parents were just saying, Cloda, go away, forget about it. But the deep trauma that we have in our psyche, it's, it's almost in our soul. So yes, with the government, good news, you know, about Tume. And, but certainly with the redress, like Beyond Adoption is an encompassing group, Niall, so it could be foster mothers, birth mothers or first mothers, um, mm. you know, cousins or whatever. So really what we're looking at, like I'm talking to the elders of the community at night time because they're very lonely. They're on their own. A lot of them, sadly, survivors have um, broken marriages, you know, just they're so traumatized. So for people, particularly the elders want the mothers, they want the redress like last year. And they are particularly in, in ill health, you know. Um, and as I said to you earlier, they just want that few bob, you know, for their pension or, as they say, to bury themselves with dignity. Yeah. And certainly with the adoptees under the six months, like they have left out, you know, uh, 24,000 of us. Mm. And as you know yourself being a survivor, um, I don't know whether you call yourself a survivor, um, certainly the trauma, the deep and rooted trauma of being separated. Like, remember, from the time the seed goes into our mother is the time that we're created. I spoke to and a psychologist the on the air here going back about three or four weeks ago. And it was coincidental this particular psychologist came on this that particular day because there was a story in the news in relation to the six-month uh, period. 
And I asked her, I said, you know, is there a bond? Is that bond really important between a child and the mother uh, in that six month period? And she said, absolutely. She said, in that six month period, if there's no bonding, which we know from the mother and baby homes, look at the photographs of St. Patrick's Home and then have a note where you had lines of cots and one person just sticking a bottle in everyone's mouth or whatever it happened to be. When you don't have that bond of being picked up on a regular basis, being held, all those things, it creates, according to this psychologist, insecurities which can carry forward into the rest of your life. In other words, that you then overcompensate for that. And you know what? I'm a bit of a huggy person. So I, I think you do overcompensate for that. And you do have that insecurity in love and you do have that insecurity, you know, in generally speaking, because you missed out on that particular bond as a child. Absolutely. And, and you know, when you look at the intergenerational, um, I'm a grandmother now. And certainly with my three children and, and the bonding and, you know, you, you find it difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my own adoption story it was, was sad. You know, it just it worked out. But sadly, my mother passed away when I was young. I'm sorry so to hear like, that. I didn't. Yeah. And my own birth mother passed away last November. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, when you don't have that great start in life and, and it wasn't a joyous event, you know, our births at all. Like my own mother was sent back from England um, five days before my birth and incarcerated onto a boat with another uh, young woman who was pregnant by a priest. And when I spoke to the archbishop, he said to me, but Claudia, like that's almost like imprisoning. Yeah. And he said, you wouldn't put cattle on a boat, yeah, you know, know, pregnant. So we, we know about all that. But certainly with, yes, very good news yesterday. But how long is this going to be drawn out? And when you know, I spoke to Alison O'Reilly back in January and she was telling me, of yeah. course, this is it. It's a done deal. It's, you know, it's voted for now. This is grand. But she said, like everything else, you know, this is going to take more time. So she was hoping that, you know, they would at least have a portal up on a website for people to make applications for the redress by the summer. But I can't see that happening. Absolutely not. No, like we, we're we're also the coalition of mother and baby homes, like and we've written to the UN and like everybody is coming back and saying like it's discrimination. It's mm. wrong. It's inhumane. But it just seems, yeah, the can is being kicked down the road. And certainly the one thing I would say to survivors, do not go to solicitors, please. Um, we we can do it on our own because it, it's, it says in the redress, like they're not going to deal with solicitors. No, and, it, and it's probably an unnecessary waste of money. And I know there are solicitors at the moment punting for it, looking for people to come forward to Well, absolutely yeah. touting. When you yeah. put in mother and baby homes in Google, we see yeah. what comes up. And I'm not speaking ill of those people, but certainly with our redress, we don't need solicitors. It's kind of like, you know, it's on a scale, it's on a grass scale or whatever. It's a Basically, set amount of money, less, yes. Set amount of money and less than six months. Run along with yourselves now and, you know, you don't matter. So ju- just in relation to the the financial aspect of it, so what are the amounts of money? I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're a child under the age of six or you weren't there for more than six months, you're not getting anything, according to the no. legislation currently at the moment. If you were there more than six months and up to a year, what is the amount of money? 6,000 euro or something like that? It's about a, a five to 10,000. Okay. It's ah. just, I, it's yes, terrible, isn't it, that we're talking about that it's, it's a very small amount of Absolutely. money when you look at the lives, like I had a survivor that rang me this morning and she was um, in uh, Castle Pollard. Mm. I won't give away too much, yeah. but she ended up being boarded out uh, as, as a lot of children were boarded out. And she said, but Clodagh, like they defined my life mm-hmm. for me. And 
she didn't get the industrial redress because she has a disability or whatever. And the one poignant thing, you know, I just said to her, you're a survivor and encouragement. And she said, the one thing they didn't take Clodagh was my heart. Yeah. And that is terribly sad. And the trauma, and you know, and, and you're excellent with survivors on the radio, Niall. You know, you hear what I've they're going them. through. I've, I've, I've listened to both oh. women and children cry yeah. on live radio in tears. You know, because of the trauma. And, and not only that, some of them, you know, trying to do track and trace and then eventually finding maybe their mother and maybe the mother doesn't want anything to do with them and that just happens every now and yeah. again. And that second rejection and how that feels for people. And then you have mothers wondering why their child, they gave up for adoption, has never contacted them. Maybe the child doesn't know. I don't know. But, but the, and their hearts are broken, absolutely broken because they never wanted to put up that child for adoption. They felt they had to. They felt they had no choice, that they weren't allowed to go back to their village or their town or whatever it was they lived with a baby because if they did they'd be shunned by the whole town or they just didn't have the money because there was no financial support in Ireland at the time for a single mum. Absolutely and doing the search angel work and when you do it and you like what you find out you know about people's lives and it's a privilege to be you know asked to do it but the trauma Niall that's behind it Mm. and the circumstances and now we're looking at psychiatric hospitals very much that a lot of women that ended up in mother and baby homes were in psych wards. And why do you think the church and and the the people, the individuals, even the administration of the church are so callous? And I'll give you a little brief example. I was uh, going away on holidays one year about 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. And the day before I went, I was driving in the car and I got a phone call and it was from Tusla. And I think it was Nexus House. And they said... uh, how you doing now? Just doing a little bit of a catch-up. Uh, you met your mother there going back a couple of years ago. How did you get on? And I said, this is quite a random phone call. Yeah. And I said, yeah, Grand, I've met her once or twice since. I said, it's been nice, you know. And I said, yeah. And she went, oh, that's great. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. And don't forget, if you ever need to give us a call, you can give us a call anyway. And I, and I felt like she was just going to hang up at that point. And then she just turns around, out of the blue. You know you have a sister, by the way, don't you? I had no idea I had a sister. I was 52 years of age. I had no idea I had a sister. And she said, oh, yeah. And she said, uh, yeah, she, she lives in England, unfortunately. And I said, can you tell me her name? No, unfortunately, we can't do that. So, <laughs> I mean. What? I'm not laughing, but it's, it's, it's just. But she was like a nun, by the way. She told me her name was Sister Something, right? But, but, oh. the, but this is the, and she was still working for Tusla. So she had, she was a nun who had been there in around the time, you know, like, and we were talking about briefly about, you know, my birth mom and she was almost unapologetic about the way the church treated women in a sense that, oh, that was the times it was and that was the way she blamed it, you know, and framed the whole thing. But what I'm saying is the, she threw me that tidbit of information randomly. Now, you would imagine, thankfully, I'm, you know, I'm a person who, you know, deals with those things quite well. But if you said that to somebody else, you know, you'd imagine you'd bring them in for an intervention. You have, a, you know, somebody there, a professional, to talk to them about things like that, you know, and rather than just springing at them on the phone. So because, of course, I work in radio, I went back to the radio station the next day. I was doing my show and I said, by the way, and I told the whole story on the radio. The Daily Mail ran me, ran it front page in the, in the newspaper three days later. This woman from England called the radio station and said, I'm not a sister. So I got to meet her. She came over to Ireland. We had dinner. It was lovely. We've kept in touch once or twice since then. You know, obviously we're not, we don't have a sister-brother relationship because you can't force that relationship, but we do keep in no. touch. And, but it was just that way of telling you for the first time in your 50 years of life or 52 years of life, suddenly you have a sister. They have no understanding of how to treat people still to this day. 
Absolutely not, you know, and, and we had one survivor that was younger and um, she, I was talking to her, not helping her with her search because she was extremely articulate, but she sent me an email that she had sent to Tusla and she said, you have destroyed my life. And she took her life. Um, oh no. Last. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I have that uh, email and just wonderfully articulate and just couldn't cope now with not telling you, uh, I'm just going to the toilet, I leave the board there, mm, mm. you know, and you're kind of almost grateful that you're not going to have a look. And it's the way that they treat people. We do not have horns and a tail. And we have to do this all voluntary, Niall, get up to speed on legislations and talking to survivors and pulling what we can. But and has, very, has Roger O'Gorman been any better than Catherine Sapone? Because I know... She basically left the, the file or the the policy or the legislation up on top of a shelf for the dust to gather. I mean, nothing really seemed to happen. So has Roderick O'Gorman yeah. dealt with it any better? Now, I know he's been quite active. Now, I know he has been criticised in the way he dealt with the report and the testimonies of the women who yeah. had come forward. Yeah. But, I mean, has it been any better? And does it really look like it's going to happen? Because the sad thing is, it's okay for us, I suppose, as the people who are the children, because most of us are still alive and we're probably all in our 50s and 60s or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But for the mothers who are now in their 80s and 90s, they're dying. So the, I think the government's plan is the longer we keep this going, the less we'll have to pay out. Sadly, Niall, you know, and certainly in Ireland, we have the biggest ratio of mother and baby homes in the whole world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at the women that went in there, uh, there is some I've come across as young as 13. My own mother was 23. Some were in their 40s. They generally are in ill health because of the trauma. And that takes away 10 to 20 percent of your lifespan. Mm -hmm. Deep trauma because, you know, you develop illnesses internally and externally. And I just think for the mothers, could they not do a payment to pay the mothers firstly? I, well, that, would be you know, the right, that would be the right thing to do, wouldn't it? That would be the dignified thing mm. to do. And, you know, they, they've got an apology and just something to realise that they didn't do anything wrong. And it's when I met the Pope and I asked the Pope to say um, at his mass that it wasn't a mortal sin for a mother or child to look for each other. The searches went through the roof, Nile. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the, the, our mothers were going, hang on a second, I'm not what they told me. I was. I'm not the devil. I'm not a bad person. I will go to heaven. And it's incredible when you, when you give people that dignity. My parents are elderly and I see how vulnerable they are. So imagine the poor mothers. Yeah. No, I know. I can, I can only imagine. And the, the track and trace legislation from last October that was brought in, do you think that's made a difference? I know, I know there's been massive delays. It was, it was, the original plan yeah. was you'd have your information back in six weeks. I know people are waiting six months, eight months. So yeah. there's been a lack of staff. I don't think they expected the amount of people to, to you know, fill out the forms or, or go online and fill out the forms as they actually did. So they were kind of really stuck. And I'm not having a go with the staff. I'm sure they've been overwhelmed by the amount they had yeah. to do. So they, they've kind of failed a little bit. But has it worked, generally speaking? Uh, it, it certainly has worked because I'm not doing as many searches as I was before. And certainly the information that people are receiving, all their information, which could, uh, the lady say was 180 pages or something. So it's very overwhelming. There is, you know, a helpline for people if they're traumatised by it. And even with some information they're writing out to people saying, look, will you contact your, we're going to give this information to your doctor.
Yes, of course. You know, yeah. so just kind of prepare people, you know, for wh- whatever. I, I do think, and I'm not a person to be down on the government or the track and tracing. I think anything that moves forward is very positive. Yes. You know, and I think certainly it, it's it's taken too long. We have lost a lot of, you know, lovely survivors along the way. And just do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Pay the mothers first. And I think that your listeners would agree. We need to, you know, they said cherish all the children in Ireland. We weren't cherished, or no. absolutely not. No. We need to cherish the mothers, our mothers who gave us life. Yeah, we were an inconvenience as far as the state was concerned at that particular time. We were a financial inconvenience because they had to pay these homes to keep us. I mean, the biggest home was St. Patrick's yeah. Home on the Navan Road, which had, would have the most amount of people who have gone through it. I think the figures were somewhere around 50,000 people had gone through it, uh, you know, between children and mothers uh, over the period of yeah. time that it was open. There's nothing now, there now but a plaque on the wall, uh, sadly, yeah. uh, for anybody who wants to go and take a photograph. I mean, but it, isn't it shocking that that went on in that home? And nobody batted an eyelid. And I remember talking to a guard. Uh, he was an ex-guard on the air once. And he had said he had said to his sergeant, there's funny goings on across the road there. This is the guard station up mm. on the Navin Road. And he said, there's funny goings on over there. And the sergeant said, ah, no, should just leave them at it. They know what they're doing there. Now, don't get involved. You know, so um, that was the way it was kind of dealt with. It was all nod and wink and should the church know best. It doesn't matter what they were doing. Body. Look, would you stop? Everybody was in on it, even on people kind of holding children before they went to America. You know, they were getting a couple of quid. But sure, Bishop Casey used to go into St. Patrick's and roar at the nuns, tell them to give up their effing babies, running up and down the corridor. You know, and then... Sorry, like... Oh, sorry, go ahead. There's a slight delay between the steps. That's fine, go on. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry about that. Um, 6,000 children perished in St. Patrick's. Mm. And they're up on the Navan Road. Mm-hmm. And the, so next, and the next biggest home would be where? Bessborough, Dunboyne, I suppose, was the last one to close, for people who don't remember that one. Um, that was probably the last one to close. Dunboyne. Uh, well, then St. Patrick's moved to Eglinton Road mm-hmm. um, near Ranla. And then they had uh, Belmont Avenue, where they, at that stage, the women kind of were lone parents, unmarried mothers had come in. It's changed now. But... Um, do I think things are getting better? Certainly, no. I, I think that we're going to have a next scandal with Tufla. Okay. And that's another conversation, Niall. Yeah. But certainly just do the right thing. And as that woman said today, the only thing they didn't take was my heart. Yeah. If people want more information, Claude, or they need help with track and trace, maybe, I don't maybe a lot of people are just not very au fait with online and all that kind of stuff. No. If, if they want a little bit of help or they need help and, um, you know, they, want, they need the help of the search angels, which I, I know you look after yourself, uh, how do you think they should do that? Or what's the best way of doing that? I think the best way, like I, I've kind of met people, I can meet them around Wexford or Wicklow if people need mm. a hand because it is a bit tricky. Like you need to have, you know, photographic ID or whatever. But contact me on Facebook, Claude Malone. Citizens' yeah. um, information are quite good. You know, some survivors just are illiterate through no fault of their own again yep. and nothing to be ashamed of. We're all here to help each other. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, Claude so, Malone, thank you very much indeed from Beyond Adoption Ireland. And if anybody wants any help, you can search for Claude online. You'll find her on Facebook or you'll find her online if you if you have quick have a quick Google there. And if you just look up uh, Beyond Adoption Ireland, you should be able to find it. Claude, listen, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And anytime you need any help at all, just give me a call and you're welcome to come on the air and talk to us. Thank you, Niall. All right, see you. Thank you. Now, let me go to, if I can, Breda Murphy. Uh, Breda, good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Niall. 
Breedy, you've been, I don't know, listening to some of the conversations there, you know, and every time I talk about adoption in Ireland, and I was talking to Catherine Corliss there, the uh, historian in relation to Tume as well as Claude Malone and a few others, we, we always feel like we're banging our head against the wall. I mean, I mean, your story initially as well, explain your story first and how you got involved in all this. Oh, it's it's such a story, Niall. I suppose I, I turned, um, I met survivors first in 2009. I did a thesis in the UK through the University of Galway on the Forgotten Irish. And I came across people um, who had been in the institutions mm. and uh, had left Ireland, you know, and were largely forgotten. And so then when the June story broke, um, you know, there were connections to my own family. There were yeah. connections to in Shanross Abbey. But I, I went to a meeting and I met Anne O'Flaherty and Michael O'Flaherty, who'd come from Toom and PJ and a few others. And I thought, you know, we can secure justice here. And I gave it a year. And, you know, almost nine years later, we are here still fighting. And if you told me that then, I would never have believed it. But... It just shows how hard justice is to win when the institutions um, close ranks or uh, circle the wagons against survivors. And I haven't been able to listen to the conversation earlier because I'm out. Um, but I would have loved to have mm. heard what, what Catherine and what Claude said. But certainly, um, any time you try to fight the state, you will have a battle on your hands. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. It's you, you absolutely are right. You do seem to have a battle on your hands constantly when you're trying to fight the state because the state, I suppose, their job is to save the taxpayer money and that's what that's all about. So, I mean, we've seen delay after delay after delay because they knew inevitably redress would have to be paid because after that apology by Michal Martin and the doll, that means that redress has to be paid. So, in other words, it's constantly delay, delay, delay. And as I said to Clodagh, the longer they delay it, they know the less they'll have to pay because more people will be dead. And, you know, the ironic thing is that they're not saving taxpayers money at all. What they're doing is forcing us to take judicial reviews. There's one already lined up on the boarded out situation. Mm -hmm. And those cases will win, just like the eight judicial reviews there over a year ago. And that is against government. And that is the misuse of taxpayers' money mm -hmm. in my book. So bad legislation leads to that. The government know what they're passing. They have already been informed by various Human Rights Watch in relation to redress that's currently going through. And it's so instructive and so informative to watch Alice Mary Higgins in particular and Paul Gavin. I, I watched her actually in the Oireachtas, yes. I, I did. I watched her in the Oireachtas actually. And she was quite powerful in what she said about the groups of people who have been um, excluded from the legislation. Mm -hmm in relation to the redress. Those who were there, the children less than six months, for example. Those, I know of a girl, for example, and her mother gave her up for adoption while she was in the Coombe Hospital. Uh, the nuns forced her to give her up for adoption. She'll be excluded. So they're all excluded, which is really wrong. And the other thing, yesterday, I mean, finding out that she signed a waiver and the minister was asked over a week ago, what did that actually mean? Mm -hmm. Because what was included for signing the waiver? So he promised to ask Mary Higgins to come back to her and yesterday he admitted that they, as yet, did not know what was included. And she said by today they really needed to know because they couldn't sign off on anything unless they knew what the waiver entailed. Well, I'm assuming the so, waiver stops you suing the state afterwards. 
not just the space, Keith. Uh, or sorry, I spoke to Keith Finnegan earlier. Um, Niall. Niall. No, not just the space. I I think as well it may well include uh, the vaccine trials, which would be GlaxoSmithKline and the religious orders. So these these were the trials that GlaxoSmithKline did in the 1960s mainly and in children in St. Patrick's Home and a few other homes as well. They basically used them as guinea pigs, the children. Yeah, they took over the the companies. They they weren't actually the the company at the time. Welcome, I think, wasn't it? Welcome, yeah. 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 They took over those companies. Mm. I think the reality being that we do not know if the waiver includes, for instance, racial discrimination forced family separation. Mm. And if it does, um, the only criteria that the redress covers is actually the length of stay, the length of time that people spent within the institution, which, when they looked at the Oak Report, which was taken by government, um, the Oak Report from survivors stated that length of stay was actually number seven on the list. Mm -hmm. So forced family separation is one of the big things the government cannot face, or will not face, rather, they could well admit to it, but mm-hmm. I think their stance is very insulting. And each time I speak, I'm very conscious that some families, uh, particularly in relation to the excavation in Tume, some families within other institutions may never have that opportunity to have their loved ones returned because the bar is set so high to prove manifestly inappropriately buried. How do we prove that without actually finding the remains? To date, we don't know where over a thousand are that are within uh, Shanmos Abbey. We do not know where over 800 are that are in Besborough. And that, again, as I said today, is criminal. In relation to the redress that they're talking about currently at the moment that was passed through the Dáil in February, I mean, I've spoken to Clodagh, I spoke to Alison O'Reilly going back some time ago in relation to this as well. When do you believe that will become available to women, particularly the mothers, not so much the children, even though they're in their 50s and 60s, most of them now, but the mothers would be in their 80s, possibly 90s, many of them passing away. That little few quid would help the maybe the last few years of their lives be a little bit happier. When do you think it's actually going to happen? Because they keep saying, oh yeah, a couple of months time, oh, the portal will be open soon. But it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. No, it's not happening. And and just because uh, June opened between 1925 and 1961, our survivors, our children born there are in their 80s as well. Oh, okay. you know? Yes, of course. So, uh, yeah, for, for, and that's why, um, Niall, one of the things for the mothers is that the payment for the work done in the home, the only women that are regarded to have worked according to the government are actually based in Tume. So, Shanross Abbey, Castle Pollard, um, Vesper is disregarded. And why is that? Because Tume closed in 1961. So the likelihood of those mothers being alive, you know, there would be fewer of them. Of course. And for for Besborough, it closed in 1998. You're talking about decades and you're talking about a much larger number uh, as well being in Shannon Savvy. So I think, you know, when you look at it, it's all about money. It really is. It comes down to money at the end of the day. But as regards when it's open, um, if it opens as it is, it will exclude many. Um, and the uh, minister has, has indicated it will open before the end of the year to those who are successful. And don't get me wrong, a lot of, of, of survivors from Tume, they were there for four years to seven years, and they do qualify. We've one gentleman who was born in Tume and spent his entire life to date within institutions. That's um, terrible, isn't it? We have another who was adopted to the United States from Tume. 
uh, well, not from Tume, was, was brought to Dublin, so he doesn't actually qualify. We have survivors within our group who don't qualify because they were there less than six months within another institution. So I never make the distinction that, you know, Tume must be, be um, looked at mm. differently. Each child deserves the same chance of justice. Whether I, couldn't agree with, I couldn't agree with you more. Or, mm, and the same opportunity and families need that opportunity. And I think the government have closed to that. And unfortunately for them, they will meet with this on the doorsteps. They've refused to engage with us in any way or show any level of compassion. And as for today, um, uh, appointing a lady to negotiate with religious orders at this late stage, We've negotiated, we've been talking to them. Why, in God's name, at this stage, can they not move forward with the structures that are within our state judicially to take them to court, to move as we would with the Criminal Assets Bureau to seize documents that are relevant and that do belong to survivors of these institutions? Listen, on that note, I'm going to have to wrap it up. Listen, thank you very much indeed. And I appreciate you coming on the air, Breda. Um, and it's been very informative listening to what you have to say. Thank you very much indeed. Let me as well go to Gladys O'Neill, if I can. Gladys, how are you doing? Hi, not too bad. And Gladys, you, I don't know whether you've been listening to our, to Catherine Corliss and Cloda and Breda. And yeah. I suppose, you know, these stories are reminiscent of many stories I've listened to over the last five or six years, certainly when we've talked about mother and baby homes on the radio as well. And, you know, it's just shocking to see that we, we seem to for constantly, until we're reminded every single time, about forget about this dirty little secret that we have. Yeah, well, it seems it, it constantly shows, you know, sort of, you know, that women have never been respected in this country, you know, mm-hmm. um, that women and babies, and if you aren't of the right, you know, in commas, you know, sort of thing from the right side of the tracks. To me, you know, the idea in 2023 that all of those babies are in a tank somewhere is unbelievable. If we were looking at other countries, you know, where always government is always going and best practice in, in Sweden and Norway, you know, why aren't we looking at best practice of, you know, that we could apply here that this is not happening? Mm-hmm. That we give dignity and respect to the mothers who gave birth to those babies and to those babies themselves. I, I, honestly, words fail me, you know. Well, they do. And I'm, I, when I was listening to Catherine talking about it, I've spoken to Catherine many times on the air. And, you know, she's a wonderful, she's an amazing woman and deserved all the humanitarian awards that she got. President, I, absolutely, I absolutely. But when I listen to the story, and I always try to imagine when she talks about these children who would have died from malnutrition, who would have died because they didn't get medical attention. Maybe they just got a simple, simple disease, a virus, and they didn't get medical attention. And when I listen to what she has to say, I can almost imagine them being buried, kind of, as I said, unceremoniously in these sewerage or septic tanks. I mean, it's shocking to even think about. Yeah. I'm going to have to actually, what I'm going to do is get, well, actually, do me a favour, Gladys, I'm going to have to get you back on the line because unfortunately I have a slight problem with the phone line there. Maybe I could just do a quick reset on that. Um, so I just tell my producer downstairs that we're just going to reset those phones there because we just have a slight problem. But if you want to get involved in the show, by the way, you can text or WhatsApp on 085 100 2255. That's 085 100 2255. 
and I'll get Gladys back now, back now on the line. I do apologise for losing it there. Always what happens on live radio, isn't it? But you've been listening, to, of course, to today's the show to Catherine Corlett, the historian, who has pointed out that there's over 900 babies' bodies buried still to this day. Now, in relation to that particular story, I told you the news came out yesterday that the... Um, uh, there's that been a new appointment, a new director to oversee the excavation of the site of the former mother and baby home in Tune, Tumen County, Galway. And on Tuesday, Minister for Children Rodrigo Gorman received cabinet approval for two key appointments that will prog- uh, progress plans to excavate the site. Uh, Daniel McSweeney was named as the director who will oversee the excavation in Tune, while Mr Gorman also told Minister that he will engage a former INTO General Secretary Sheila Noonan to lead negotiations with religious bodies on his behalf. Um, I, sorry, Gladys, I have you back there. But Gladys, you heard the news yesterday that a new director had been appointed for the excavation of the site. Does that make any difference or does it make you feel a little bit better? No, it doesn't. You know, I this delay, um, there's no words for it. There's, you know, um, I think it's all kind of, you know, no disrespect to the person, but mm-hmm. just spin. You know, why? Yeah. In God, you know, in one hand we hear on the radio... There's X amount of money there, and you name it. This should have been the first thing that they did with with the extra money in taxes that they've collected. Yeah, you know that these babies are are given the dignity, their families can put them to rest. You know, yeah, and uh, show the world that we are. You know, we're always how humane we are. But I I don't believe it. How can that possibly be? And I'm sorry, I get really passionate about it because who could do this? You know, my, my youngest daughter's two or her baby, you know, in a couple of months. And the idea is, is sickening, you know, that they, the nuns, they did this, they walked away, knowing that those babies were like trash. Mm. And I'm sorry. I got oh, they really were, no, no, they, no, they were commodities. They were just commodities because, yeah. because they yeah. got paid per head. That was the state paid yeah. them per head. So they were commodities. Yes. yes. And, and they need to stand up. And truth has to be told. We have to look at our past. You know, we're still, some of us are still alive from that horrendous past. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to look at it and honour, you know, and hands up, you know, like and sort of this business of a new investigator or a new this or a new that. I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. And that, and Catherine, and honestly, do the right thing for a woman who, who, who did not back down, you know, and I have nothing but admiration mm-hmm. for her courage and, you know, but do not back she, down. The, just you do know the what right the saddest thing. part about Catherine's story is Catherine, you know, exposed this, you know, tragic, tragic story and yeah. nobody listened to her. When I say nobody listened, oh, yeah. we did. You know, I remember having Catherine on yeah. the very early days in the media. Alison right. O'Reilly, of course, ran her story in the Daily Mail, which was the first journalist to run the story. And it was only yeah. then, when the media started to really expose it, that the government took interest. Up to that point, they were ignoring her. She was constantly yeah. knocking on doors saying, look, there's over 900 babies' bodies buried here. Do you care? Like, And nobody seemed but to the, care. The, the state does that, you know, sort of thing. They, they, you know, you learn as you get older exactly what, what the procedure is. I, they did the same with the redress system for institutional abuse. There was only X amount allowed on that list. They added another list. Mm-hmm. And all of the thousands and hundreds, you know, whether they were in boarding schools or in other institutions that didn't have the right name on them or how they were categorised or whatever, did not get any redress or any acknowledgement of the damage that was done to them. So these babies and mothers and this horrendous 
absolutely horror, you know, that um, it, it, that they, they would deny it doesn't surprise me at all. No, it doesn't surprise doesn't me. Surprise. And hoping, and also believe that, that the pushback that, that Catherine received was to deny the truth because they knew, they knew mm. what, you know, what was there, what, you know, this was going to be the exposure of, of what we really were like. And, and, you know, we think we're great humanitarians and we send a load of money to various countries and we take in and all. This is what we did to our own. It, it is. is and I, by the way, I don't, I don't want to, you know, equate one with the other, but, we, you know, we want to present ourselves to the world as this wonderful nation, you know, who will take in as many refugees as possible. We'll help as many yeah. people as possible. That's the type of country and people we are. And we'll yeah. spend millions on that. But we won't, yeah. we're, we're afraid to spend, you know, a couple of million or whatever it is, or it's actually 1.4 billion, I think it is, uh, on the people who have suffered at the hands of the state. Irish people yeah. and Irish children who have suffered at yeah. the hands of the state. Now, how can, how can anybody believe them, you know? Mm-hmm. How can anybody have faith in that? And, and, and I understand completely what you're saying. Nobody wants to pit one human being against another no, human not at being. All. Because that's what they did. That's what they did. These were women that were poor, women that, you know, through rapes, through, we know all of the history of how those women, you know, were put into the, you know, the religious, had such a frank and sh- Well, as I said earlier on, families, yeah. and, and people have said this to me, I remember somebody coming on the radio one day and arguing with me and saying, but Niall, you know, surely their parents have some responsibility. And I said, no, because the parents were told by the Catholic Church, your daughter's pregnant, don't dare have her in the village. Put her up there in the mother and baby home and make yeah. sure she doesn't come home with that baby. Because if she does, you'll be the shame of the whole town. And those, and those parents felt they morally had to do that because that was part of their religion. And that's what the Catholic Church did with an iron fist on a regular basis. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I know from personal experience that, you know, that the people that were devout Catholics, you know, thought they were doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were, you know, the mindset, the cult, if you like, of, of that, you know, mindset, that this is the right thing to do. You know, this is the right thing to do with my daughter. And put because of the shame, you know, nothing could be worse than being pregnant and bringing a beautiful baby into the world, you know. I, I mean, was I was told by a mother. To I was told by a mother who was in Dunboyne there during the year. I was chatting to her on the air, and she was saying that the nuns told her when she had her baby that she wasn't taking her baby home with her, and that they were told to pass on a message to her that she wasn't welcome home in the house unless she gave the baby up for adoption. That she wasn't to bring the baby home, and she said she cried her eyes out, and she said they literally just took the baby. And I had no choice. But I, I, it, it really, you know, as I say, as a mother, like, but when I had my first child, you know, in, in uh, mater, the main maternity hospital, that was 1980. And we were made to sit in the bed, like, you know, Mother O'Neill here, Mother Brown here, like, yeah. like soldiers, you know, war, uh, God knows, whatever. And sitting up nice and neat, matron coming around, tidying the bed, you know, the hair, we had to brush it. I mean, we were on bits. Yeah, and, you know, so master was coming around to stare at us all. You know, yeah, that was like to inspect you. It's like you, you know? were so. It was like you were soldiers on parade. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you know, know, like you just could not move out of that bed. You had to be neat and tight. It was like, oh my god, institutionalized. You know, this was, and this man came around to inspect. You know, these birth givers or whatever. <laughs> it just crazy. Well, you know, I mean, when I, I've said this to people on, on numerous occasions because I found a receipt 
uh, I was born in St. Patrick's Home on the Navan Road. And I found the receipt after my parents had died and everything else. It was all through all their paperwork in the house. I found a receipt, I think it was for £200 he had donated uh, to St. Patrick's Home yeah. on Avon Road. So essentially I was purchased. And and they got do- yeah. huge donations from American donators as well who came over. Or they would send the babies over to America, if you remember some of those stories. They would send the babies over. So essentially they were baby factories. They were making money well, from absolutely. the state and making money from donators. Yeah, and, and we, you know, we have to to stand up as a country and say, and the state has to stand up and say, we did this. Mm-hmm. We did this to mothers. We did this to babies. We did this to children. You know, and, and how can you ever move forward if you don't actually acknowledge the truth? You know, and you know you but you know, you know, the sad the thing right is, thing. Too, well, I, I just come into my head, the sad thing is that it still happens around the world. What, what, oh, yeah. what the Irish did, uh, you know, these orphanages essentially, or mother and baby homes, um, and, you yeah. know, making people feel bad about keeping their own children. And, of course, the state made people feel bad because they didn't support young women who had children. Thankfully, we brought in a social welfare system that helped support yeah. women. Um, but if we look around the world, you know, where children are being adopted from now in different parts of the world, sadly, you know, some are third world countries and some countries where there's just women in poverty. I feel bad for those women because I think in 50 years' time, those countries will look back and say, why did we allow that to happen? Because they're doing exactly the same thing we yeah. did. Well, this is it. I mean, it's it's the idea that, you know, that that this thing can be purchased, you know, sort of thing that somebody can buy, you know, a human being. Or we, you Which know, is what they did. St. Say, say Patrick's Home on the Navan Road yeah. had an open day on a Sunday. Yeah. And, and the open day was that potential parents would come in and the children would be all on view. And Well, I, you know, I know you're telling the truth uh, 100% because my, mo- my late mother who was terribly upset about uh, a little baby that had been born to a mm. relative who was in a home and that viewing you're talking about and, and my mother crying to me saying, because he was so beautiful uh, but he had a turn in his eye and she said, oh, he won't be picked. And I remember thinking, even as a child, that's weird, you know, and that they were going to fix his eye so he'd have a better chance of being picked in vertical commas. My my biological mother told me about that and she said they were warned to make the make sure the, the babies were clean, tidy, looked well yeah. for, for open day on a Sunday where these potential parents who were parents who might have had a little bit of money in those days just having any yeah. money was, was wealthy and they would wander through and go, yeah, that's a nice one there. And it was kind of almost like how much is the doggy in the window, you know what I mean? And when you, when you think about it, you know, that's probably how I was bought, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it was really the look of the draw. Yeah. If you got loving parents and people, you know, people who cared and loved for you, you know, that the idea that that the lack of, you know, sort of, that the, the mindset, and I remember my mother talking about this, that the mindset was, it, you know, once they were Catholic, that's, well, you know, that was it. You know, they could yeah. do no wrong, you know, which is just nuts, you know. And the, the, idea the other was, thing she told me was that, um, at the time, she said like she would be sent down to Phillipsborough Church to clean the church um, during the day. And then, you know, the nuns would look after the baby. And what they used to do was her and some of the other women that were there was they'd write their name and address or whatever their parents address on a piece of paper and stuff it into the baby's nappy in case the baby was taken while they were gone. Oh. When you think like this, what shocking stories. Listen. Gladys, it's been lovely it's talking to you. I could talk to you all day. It's been really nice talking well, to you. Well, look at, you know, just uh, Catherine Corley for a president. <laughs> Whenever there's the vote, you know, sort of thing, I'll be first in the queue. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Thank absolutely. you very much for all highlighting right. this. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Gladys. Okay. All right, Bye let me just go to Derry-Anne before I finish up here. Derry-Anne, 
You're on the Loud Boyden podcast. How are you doing, Daria? It's hard to make me speechless now, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm just shocked. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I lived on the Navan Road. That's where I grew up. And, of course, that place, nobody spoke about it, uh, St. Patrick's. But I'm really, I'm just so saddened now. And, you know, have we changed? No, we haven't. And how dare this go on? still in this day and age. And I mean, if any of those women want us to get out in the streets, I'd be the first one out with Oh, them. I know you would. Um, I know you would. Yeah. But, but no, you know, when, when we tell um, those stories, and when I've, I've told a couple of stories there oh. too, and Gladys and, and Catherine Corliss and Claude before that and Breda, people find it hard to believe that went on in a country. And by the way, this wasn't two or three hundred years ago. This was 40 no, years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, and that's very fresh in my mind 40 years ago. But funny, I, you know, one of the things uh, that shocked me yesterday was I was having a chat with somebody who had a baby recently and uh, the, the couple are engaged, right? And um, when, when during COVID, if you were, weren't married, you could go online and get your birth cert or whatever it is for the child, right? And now they've changed the rule. If you're not married, you have to go into Lombard Street to oh. pick up the child. So, so, now, they're what? They're still, me, so they're still treating single parents differently is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that was yesterday's, fresh off the press yesterday. And I just said, how dare they? Look, we really do have to stop stop treating like women and and that I heard that lady talking about her famous Charles McQuaid like that man uh, oh don't get me going about him (laughs) no don't go there but but still to think that he get respect from the church to this day is is just you know I don't know how I haven't been locked up a long time ago with some of this stuff (laughs) I I mean it 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 is shocking but here's what we are talking about mainly today is the fact that they keep promising all these people, yes. be it the, 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 the women, the children, you know, oh, the redress scheme. Yeah, we're going to give you a few quid. You know, OK, it's only money, but at least, look, they might get a nice holiday at 80 years of age, to, you know, to pass off their life but at least with a smile. Their electricity bill. Oh, well, whatever, you know? yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's what we should... We have to call the the government. We really do because it's the only, he who shouts the loudest will get looked after. Yeah. And I'm telling you that that's the only way they have to be shamed into this. Like how and you talked there recently about you know abusing politicians if you see them. But how could you hold back when they're doing this to people in this day and age and hiding from it all? You know it's just not right. It's not right. And I I 100 percent admire all those women who are on and I thank them for all their sharing and um, but we are as women have to stick together and men you're you know yeah. you're there with us and um, and and get this stopped and I'm telling you if when they when they are shamed that's when they will and they have to give those people money I mean it's it's absolutely scurrilous scurrilous uh, right, beyond belief. thank you very much indeed Terry and I appreciate you coming on the air that about wraps it up for the show today um, what a show it's been. Listening to Catherine Corliss was eye-opening. And I can only imagine, or I certainly can't imagine, what it was like to watch nuns carry these small little bodies and bring them down and essentially dump them in a septic tank. Can you even imagine that? Imagine if somebody did that nowadays. They'd be brought straight to the gallows. But unfortunately, nobody was held accountable for because that's typical of Ireland. No accountability whatsoever. 
We knew about this going back 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we knew that there was wrongdoings because there was reports out at the time in relation to the Magdalene Laundries. The sex abuse, the physical abuse, and the abuse of women and the way women were treated in the Magdalene Laundries. We knew about it then, but we did nothing. Not a single person, not one single person has gone to jail because of it. Council workers who would have been responsible for funding these places. Remember, this is not just the church. This is the state as well. 50-50 they were in on this. The state paid the church to look after all this. They washed their hands with it. The same as they did with education. And we've seen what happened there in education. Although we all got a good education, look at the sexual and physical abuse that went on. But in these mother and baby homes, these baby factories, essentially what they are, children were sold to the highest bidder. On a Sunday afternoon, potential parents would come around on open days and look at the children. And as you heard Gladys mention, one poor child had a turn in his eye. They said, oh, he won't be picked. He's not cute enough. While the mothers went off to work for the nuns, the babies were given away. They were terrified. They would put little notes into their nappies. And those children that were there for six months are now being told by our government, you're not getting a bean. You were only there for less than six months. That hasn't affected you because our psychologists know best, which is completely untrue. I've spoken to psychologists on the air. Even in that six-month period, it's a bonding period, probably the most formative years of a child's life. And even the ones who are entitled to redress, once again, Roderick O'Gorman and the government are delaying and delaying and delaying. Why? The cynical part of me says they're hoping that more people will die so they'd have to pay out less money. Because all the children now, some of them are up in their 80s, but most of them be somewhere between 50 and 80 years of age. The parents, those mothers, are all in their 80s, maybe 90 at this stage. Many of them now passing away. Will their children get the money? Probably not. Will you be able to sue the state afterwards? Probably not. You're probably going to have to waive your rights to do that. But tell you what, if you do want to go and see a solicitor and you happen to have the money or you're one of those people out there who's not short of a few quid, take a high court case. That would soon sort the government out. Forget about the redress. Just go straight to the courts. I guarantee you, it'll be worth an awful lot more than the government are ever going to pay in redress. Anyway, we'll be back again tomorrow. If you've any thoughts and you want to share your stories, we will do this again. And I want to hear from more victims and survivors. We need to make sure the government knows exactly that we mean business. If you want to text us or WhatsApp us or contact us, you can. 85 100 That's the number. 85 100 Or you can email me, Nile at nileboylan.com. Easy one to remember. Nile at nileboylan.com. Just go to the website, nileboylan.com. The stream will be up for the next 10 or 15 minutes for people to watch over it. We do take the stream down from Facebook and Twitter. But we will put it up for download on our website and we'll put some links up a little bit later on on www.nileboylan.com. Until then, I'll talk to you again tomorrow at 12. Have a good day. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 85 The Niall Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.